0: Hi, good evening. My name is Mindy Hankin, and I am the CEO of the Mandel JCC. It's my pleasure to welcome you to our beautiful JCC this evening for tonight's program. The JCC is very proud to partner with all the agencies that are listed on your program for tonight's event. I want to just take this moment and wish everyone a Shana Tova, a Happy New Year. It's my hope that in this new year you will continue to come to uh, Jewish programs and all the Jewish agencies in our community to support our agencies, to become a member of the JCC and involved in all of our agencies and synagogues throughout throughout the community. Um, We're going to get started with tonight's program. Enjoy. If you haven't been to the JCC before, please take a moment after tonight's event and take a tour of the center. Any of the JCC staff would be happy to give you a tour. Thank you. Have a good time.
1: Thank you again, Mindy. My name is Brooke Wiener. On behalf of Jewish Federation of Palm Beach County, I want to welcome you to this program that comes at a pivotal time for the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism and hostility against Israel is unfortunately a daily reality and has been a rampant issue for centuries. In today's world, we do not always expect it. However, during and following the recent military conflict with Israel and Hamas, anti-Semitism was evident everywhere. This summer, we witnessed an explosion of anti-Semitic violence in Europe, Latin America, and elsewhere. A recent published survey of anti-Semitism attitudes in 100 countries found that 24% of Western Europe citizens harbor anti-Semitic attitudes. In Eastern Europe, it's even worse. All in all, one quarter of the world's population holds some kind of anti-Jewish prejudice. We will hear more on this tonight from a representative from the Anti-Defamation League, which published this heartbreaking report. There are far too many episodes of anti-Semitism we've seen recently across the world. There are far too many—I'm sorry. Two Israeli tourists were killed as an unknown assailant opened fire at the Jewish Museum in Brussels. During an anti-Israel demonstration in Paris, two synagogues in Paris were attacked. Congregants were trapped inside while attackers ruthlessly fought to get in. In Venezuela, the government attempted... Sorry. In In Venezuela, Venezuela, the government government attempted attempted to force Jews to condemn Israel. Israel. Meanwhile, Israel Israel continues to be the target of boycotts in the academia academia and academic academic associations. associations. The The Boycott, boycott Divestment, divestment and Sanctions Movement, movement, also also known as BDS, discriminates against Israeli institutions professors, and students for no other reason than their nationality and the distorted perception of the policies of their government. Academics are destroying the principles that guide true academia
0: through the promotion of distortion
1: and hiding behind the veil of free speech.
2: It's time to stand up to rising anti-Semitism
1: by raising some serious questions questions this evening. How do we we need to evaluate evaluate the anti-Semitism of today? Is today's anti-Semitism a fad, a phenomenon, or simply a sad truth? Is one-sided criticism of Israel another manifestation of anti-Semitism? What is the US government doing about this rising problem? More important, what do what we, do, we do, about
2: do about it? I, I want to thank, thank the Jewish, Jewish
1: Community this awesome. <laughs> Relations Council of, of the Jewish Federation of Palm Beach County, County for making this evening possible. This, this program, program is also is made possible in part
2: by, by the, the one, one World Project, project of, of the, the Leonard and Sophie James Davis Fund
1: for Tolerance Program, program in, the in the Greater Palm Beach Jewish community. The, the One World, World Project, Project supports programs addressing ideas and activities and relating to tolerance, diversity, social justice, and multiculturalism. These ideas will be explored through a variety of methodologies and with different groups throughout the Palm Beach service area. This multi-year initiative is it's designed design to be collaborative,
2: collaborative
1: and, and further the idea, the idea of a compassionate and empowering poverty County. County. I, I also, also want to thank David and Lisa, Lisa, like There's There's up. Up. Lisa um for sponsoring this program. Likewise, I, I want to express my gratitude, my gratitude, gratitude to all, all the Federation, Federation departments, departments and partners, and partners. That participated in this and, and future programs Jewish, programs. Jewish Professionals Network, Network Cole Isha, Next NextGen, the, the Mantle, Mantle Jewish Community Center, Center and, and the Anti Defamation League. League. I, I want, want to recognize, recognize the presence of many of you colleagues David Phillips, President and, President and CEO, of Jewish Federation, Federation of Beach County. County, Representative Patrick, Patrick Murphy, of, of Florida's 18th Congressional District, District. Philippe Latrouillard, La
2: Council General
1: of France and in Miami, Jurgen Borch, Council General, General of Germany, of Germany and Miami. Now, now it is my, my pleasure, pleasure to introduce to the moderator of tonight's event. event. Dr. Stephen Sussman is, is an, an Associate Professor of Public, Public Administration at the University. University. Where he, where he teaches, teaches a master, master and bachelor a of a public, public administration programs. Program. He earned his PhD in political science, in Georgia science from Georgia State, State University. University. Dr. Dr. Sussman, Sussman has, lectured has lectured extensively in the US and in Israel. In Dr. Sussman, Sussman is a, a member of several boards of directors in in our community community, and is also a a past past Vice President of the Palm Beach Synagogue.
0: Ladies Ladies and and gentlemen,
1: gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Dr. Stephen Sussman.
3: Well, thank Thank you, Brooke, for the kind introduction. I don't think this is going to fit on here.
2: Uh, As you heard, my name is Stephen Sussman, and I will be the
3: moderator for this evening's forum. Before I introduce the speakers, I want to remind everyone of tonight's guidelines. Each speaker will speak for approximately 15 minutes. Later, we will have a question and answer period. Along with your program, you have, you have all been given a card on which to write your questions. When requested, pass the card to the volunteers who will pick them up and bring them to me. I will do my best to ask as many questions as possible. Now, this evening's speakers. Hava
2: Holtzauer is the Anti-Defamation League's Regional Director for the State of
3: Florida. Deeply committed to fighting anti-Semitism and protecting the rights of all Americans, Ms. Holtzauer oversees ADL's work in Florida, including monitoring domestic extremist activity, providing anti-bullying and cyberbullying education, training law enforcement on domestic extremism and hate crimes, preserving civil liberties and religious freedom, advocating for Israel, safeguarding Jewish institutions and conducting Holocaust education workshops. Ms. Holtzauer is an experienced civil and criminal litigator. She served with the Palm Beach County State Attorney's Office, where she handled hate crime cases. Ms. Holtzauer's place of work, the ADL Florida Regional Office in Boca Raton, serves the entire state and fights anti-Semitism and all forms of discrimination through information, education, legislation, and advocacy. Dr. Charles Small is the director of the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy. He is also the correct distinguished scholar at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Dr. Small earned his Bachelor of Arts in Political Science at McGill University in Montreal, a Masters of Science in Urban Development, Planning and Economics at University College in London, and a Doctor of Philosophy from Oxford University. Dr. Small has performed research in Montreal, London, and in many cities across Israel.
2: Dr. Small was the founding director of the Yale initiative for the interdisciplinary study of anti-Semitism,
0: the first interdisciplinary research center on anti-Semitism
3: at a North American university. At Yale, he taught in the political science department in the program on ethics, politics, and economics, and ran a postdoctorate and graduate studies fellowship program dedicated to anti-Semitism research. He has lectured internationally and worked as a consultant and policy advisor in North America, Europe, Southern Africa, and the Middle East. Dr. Small specializes in social and cultural theory, globalization, national identity, socio-cultural policy, and racism. In 2013, Ira Foreman was sworn in as special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. Inspired by his parents values, Mr. Foreman has dedicated 30 years of experience to Jewish communal work and public service. Mr. Foreman received his BA from Harvard University where he graduated magna cum laude in government. He received his MBA from Stanford University's graduate school of business. More recently, Mr. Mr. Foreman served as the Jewish Outreach Director for the Obama for America campaign. He served for nearly 15 years as the Executive Director of the National Jewish Democratic Council and spent four years with the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, AIPAC, where he worked as Political Director and Legislative Liaison. He has also served on the boards of a number of Jewish nonprofits. In the Clinton administration, Mr. Foreman was the Director of Congressional Relations for the Office of Personnel Management. Earlier in his career, he worked as professional staff of the Public Works and Transportation Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives.
2: Throughout his career, he has spoken
3: and written extensively on Jewish history and public policy. Mr. Forman co-edited and wrote for the reference book, Jews and American Politics. Welcome all three panelists. Our first speaker is Hava Holtar.
4: Thank, thank you so, so much Dr. Sussman, Dr. Sussman for that introduction and Brooke for your terrific introduction. Uh, it's it's an, an honor to be, be here on this panel, panel today with, with Professor Small and with Mr. Foreman. And, and I would also, also like, like to, to thank the, to thank the Board Board Federation of Palm Beach Board County and, and Louise Fleischman of the Jewish Community, Community Relations, Relations Council for, having, for having the, the foresight bringing us all together, together today to discuss this very important topic. So. ADL was formed 101 years ago with a two-pillar mission, and that mission on the one hand was to fight anti-Semitism, to combat hate directed towards Jews, and on the other hand to secure justice and fair treatment for all people, to fight hate in all of its forms. Is anti-Semitism really a threat? So we, we all come to the discussion this evening with our own experiences, where we grew up, where we were born, born how we were raised, every different place that, that we lived, lived. And, and, that and that informs the discussion, the discussion on anti-Semitism. It's the anecdotal, anecdotal information, it's the experiences that we've, we've had and that have been shared with us from friends and, and family. So I was born, born in Washington, D.C., have always lived in the United, United States of America. America always in a major, major city, city with a with pretty, pretty decent-sized Jewish, Jewish population, went from Washington, D.C. to, to Southfield, South Mission outside of Detroit, Detroit then, then was in, in the, the suburbs north of Chicago, Chicago then to Bramingham, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, college of Boston, in Boston, and, and ten, 10 years, years ago, in, landed uh, in, in South Florida where I raised my own children. children. So to take those experiences, i was, I was so always very comfortable, comfortable as a jew comfortable, comfortable wearing my high, high necklace, necklace comfortable, comfortable on the high holidays twice, twice a year, year walk, walking the services. Comfortable, comfortable standing up speaking out about, about my Judaism. i never, never ever felt uncomfortable, uncomfortable. i certainly had my My share of experiences of small anti-Semitic incidents. My My name is Hava. I was was a a basketball basketball player, so my name was food for fodder for for all all of the opposing team members in middle school, school, high school, and college. college. Uh, Uh, Another another incident incident that I remember, I was a senior senior in high school and my biology professor professor. came came up to to me and he said, where is uh, the $20 that you need to turn in for the field trip. trip? Any normal, normal question. question, I was late, yeah. I, I hadn't it to $20, but, but he, he followed, followed that question, question by, by saying, I know, I know you're, you're Jewish and your, and your dad can dad afford it. So, so small incidents, it has a experience, but always felt comfortable. So, so fast, fast forward, 18, 18 months, months ago, I took to this position, position with the Anti Defamation League, and one of the first things that I did, and this was June of 2013, is I made the rounds. I went and all over, over South Florida, Florida and other parts of Florida, and I met with leaders of different Jewish organizations, organizations heads of synagogues, of executive, executive directors, directors rabbis, and, rabbis and, and I remember two conversations, conversations in particular, because they were poignant and, and they struck me. me. These, These were the leaders, leaders of large, large congregations, independent conversations. Independent conversations. After, after, telling conversations, conversations, conversations. After, after telling them you know, why I took this position and about, about my role at ADL and the relevance of ADL, they, they each individually, individually said to well, me, do you think anti-Semitism is still an issue for American Jews? Jews? Do you think that this is, this is something you know, that's still in our minds, our minds and our top, top 10 of what's, what's important? important. And, and 18, 18 months in, in, I can tell them if we I went back had and had that conversation today, and I probably I will, will. Um, um, unequivocally, um, yes. We all, all experienced what, what happened this summer after Operation Protective Edge, the surgeon anti-Semitism around the world, unequivocally, unequivocally. It's, it's an important issue, issue. it's still it's an issue. issue, and I'm but glad we're talking, talking about it today. today. So, so what has now been up to? In Interestingly, prior to Operation Protective Edge, edge we had undertaken, undertaken a, a, global, a global, global poll, poll polling 102, 102 countries and territories around the, the world, world. <laughs> and, and the results came out in May of 2014. And what did we find? big finding is that that basically one in four adults worldwide harbor anti-Semitic attitudes. (laughs) It's It's a global problem, not just regional, there are regional differences, but you can see from this map which highlights some of the reasons in the United States, the anti-Semitic index score was at 9% in... I say MENA a lot. It stands, stands for Middle East and North Africa. Africa. In MENA, the, the average index score was 74 percent. Take, Take that with what we, experience we experienced this summer: the shooting at the Jewish Museum in, in Brussels. Brussels. Alone gunman attacked. attacked. He, was he was a French nationalist. nationalist. He, he had, had Islamic extremist ties. He, he killed four individuals, individuals, and, and his, his motive, motive was anti-Semitism. anti-Semitism. Bringing it closer, closer to home stateside, state side. many of us watched on TV in, in Overland Park, Park, Kansas, the, the shooting at the Jewish Community Center. center. It, it killed, killed three, three people. people. The, the gunman, again, a lone gunman, gunman was a neo-Nazi, had ties with the Ku Klux Klan, and, and the again, the motive, motive was anti-Semitism. bringing bringing it it even even closer closer to to home. home. Whoop, I think we've got the wrong slide here. here. Interesting there there it is. Take Take a look at at this picture. picture. This This is one of hundreds hundreds and hundreds of anti-Israel protests that occurred around the world. Hundreds hundreds in our country, ADL actually trapped them. This was an anti-Israel protest in Miami on July 20th. Of, of this, this summer. summer, and yeah. I, I hear long links, so you're all it's reading the, the poster, poster that this little, little boy is holding. Um, you, know, you know, there is legitimate, legitimate criticism of Israel. Of Israel. What but we'll What we saw, saw this summer in the search was that the, the rhetoric, the but we'll what, we saw saw the what we saw on the signage, and the chance of these protests was, was not legitimate.
0: legitimate.
4: It was outright like anti-semitism, anti-Semitism, nothing hiding. If you read the, the sign in there, it says long the box. This 45 45 boy is 4 to 5 year boy is holding the, the poster, poster and it also says half Jews. Nothing, Nothing in it. Is. Is. So the, 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 the poll, poll itself, itself has 102 countries and territories. What's in yellow is in the, yellow is the area, yellow area of the world that was surveyed, what's in blue are those weren't. And, and one statistic to highlight right here is there were over 53,000 interviews conducted. Imagine that feat in different languages. Different, different nuance, posters on the, on the ground. ground. And, and of those surveyed, it covered over, represented over four billion, billion people, which, which is 88.4% percent of, of the world's adult population. population. Pretty, pretty huge. So I keep, I keep referring, referring to the index score. But the, the, the questionnaire, questionnaire itself, the survey was forty-five. questions questions plus plus its subparts. 11 of those questions questions made up the the index scores. scores. And And those 11 questions questions were negative stereotypes of Jews. Jews. And And the index score was created by asking whether the 11 negative stereotypes were probably true or probably probably false. false. And the respondents had to say say six of the the 11 were probably true true in order for purposes of the index for us to consider that they had anti-Semitic attitudes. So if you read some of these questions, Jews have too much power in the business world, Jews think they are better than other people, people hate Jews because of the way Jews behave, Jews still talk too much about what happened in the Holocaust. The first one up there um, brings up a lot of conversation. The, the first negative, negative anti-Semitic stereotype, stereotype is the Jews are more like loyal to Israel, Israel than this country or, or the countries they live in, and so a lot of people, people have said, "Well, I feel that, that don't I feel that way. I'm Jewish, and I feel that way." Why is that is a negative stereotype? Okay. Again, you have to remember, you didn't, you didn't have, to have, to have to just answer, answer probably true to one, one or two, two or two, three, two, three or four. You, you had to answer six or more probably true to be counted in the death. This she we, we did a ranking system of countries based on scores. So if you ranked number one, it actually means you are the highest offender in terms of anti Semitic attitudes. So, not surprisingly, the West Bank and Gaza rank at 93% and at number one. Also, interesting to note in that first column are our, our partners. Egypt, Egypt, Jordan Jordan at 81% to 75%. So that means you know know, eight out of ten people in Jordan Jordan, harbor anti-Semitic attitudes. Another way to look at this: We're in Florida. My parents over the holiday were talking about the cruise they're going on soon and all the different places the ship is going to port. So if you think about it this way, every place that you're going to port you know, the people that you're going to encounter, encounter, there's there's a certain certain number number that harbor anti-Semitic attitudes and and just social science data shows that. that. So So here here we have some of the lower numbers. You You can see in the last column, the United United States at 9%, the Philippines at 3%, it looks like a great place to go and visit. (laughs) 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 Um, I'm gonna highlight just a few of the findings.
2: There's so, so much data, data regional, regional influence.
4: There's an assumption often that religion is a bigger influence than region on anti-Semitic attitudes and that actually isn't. So look at the two columns at the bottom. The one on the left represents Muslim respondents and the one on the right represents Christian respondents. So look, for example, at MENA. 75% of Muslim respondents, 64% for MENA respondents. And then look down to Western Europe
2: You have 29% for Muslim respondents and 25% for Christian respondents.
4: Another interesting finding is that fewer than 10% of respondents say that they interact with Jewish people very or somewhat often. So most people around the world haven't been a Jew. This graph It exemplifies this as really only two regions of the world where where people have sort of regular contact with Jewish Jewish populations populations and that in the Americas and and in Eastern Europe. And of above the seventy four percent who've never met a Jewish person, twenty-five percent still harbor anti Semitic attitudes. So you get you get the point here. here. Holocaust, you we had a number of questions about, about the Holocaust. Holocaust. Only about half of the respondents polled had ever even heard of the Holocaust. they think that, that juxtaposed to all the we do here in this country related to educating on the Holocaust and, 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 what, and what that, that means about, about the world. And, and among, among those who heard of the Holocaust, a third believe that, believe that it's either a myth or that, myth or that it has, has been greatly exaggerated. exaggerated. And, and again, that's different, different, different depending on the region of the country. The country. Another interesting finding, the more that people overestimate the number of Jews there are in the world, the more they tend to harbor anti-Semitic views. So if you look at the divergence in this graph, over on the left, on the bottom, people who believe that there are 0 to 2% of the world's population is of Jews, their index score was 27%, and it fans out at the end, those who thought or think that the Jewish population makes up more than 20% of the world are at 40%, Atlantic 40% Atlantic score. in the next floor. In the West, West, the more educated, West less, less likely, likely to hold anti-Semitic views. views. And in the Middle East, the more educated, the more likely to hold anti-Semitic views. So maybe we're being educated differently. We all come with our own experiences the, the, the major, major implication of, of this poll, poll is that we now have a baseline. baseline. We, we have, have some, some social science data, data that we can use so that we can, can see how things, things change over time, time when we re-poll poll based on, poll. on, based on, on poll. the work we do. Before, Before this, the only the social science data, data that a had or that we and they had, had was from polling, polling in the United States, States and in a couple of the European, European countries. Now we have comprehensive information. information. It's also important, important to note when we started polling, polling in the United States on anti-semitic attitudes, it was, it was almost at thirty percent and the threshold was lower than what we used for the these findings. findings. It's kind of interesting that now in the US at a higher threshold is down to nine percent. So we have a lot of work to do and I'm sure we're gonna hear more about it tonight and thank you for being here for this important conversation.
5: Thank you so much. Thank you very much. okay thank you very much it's a great honor to be here uh, Ambassador Foreman and other distinguished guests of the panel and uh, representatives from uh, France and from Germany. Um, I'm honored to be here. I'd like to say a special welcome to my parents who are here, Norman and Judy Small. It's nice that they're here. (laughs) And I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Sami and Joyce Apple, who are also uh, involved in the struggle against anti-Semitism globally. So it's nice that they're here as well. So I'm going to start off with um, a story. It was 1947 in Tel Aviv, and the leaders of the Zionist movement were invited to a special dinner, a very formal dinner by His Majesty's troops. The leaders of the British uh, government at the time in Palestine invited the leaders of the Zionist movement in 1947. It was a very hot summer night in Tel Aviv, and you know Tel Aviv can be stifling hot and humid, and this was before air conditioning and everybody was, uh, was formal attire, it was an official British uh, evening so people came in gowns and tuxedos and top hats and everybody was very warm and the leaders of the Zionist movement with the leaders of the British government were on the head table up on a podium and David Ben-Gurion and many Israelis as you know are quite informal. So in the middle of the dinner David Ben-Gurion was very hot so he took off his top hat and he took off his tie and undid his shirt and he put the jacket on the back of his chair. And the governor was turning all sorts of colors, he was very upset and he wrote a note very angrily and he gave it to his assistant and the assistant marched over to Ben-Gurion and Ben-Gurion opened the note and the governor said that this is an international travesty, this is a diplomatic, uh, this is going to be a diplomatic problem and that you have to put your formal attire back on immediately because this is a great insult to his majesty. So Ben-Gurion wrote back, it's okay, Winston Churchill said it's fine. (laughs) Gave it back to his assistant and the assistant gave it to the governor. And when the governor read this, he became even more disturbed and upset and he was red. Anyways, as the dinner ended, the governor stood up and he made a beeline for Ben-Gurion and he said, what is this? This is an international diplomatic insult and this is going I'm t- sending a telex right after this dinner and this is there's going to be a formal problem with the British government and the leaders of the Zionist movement and w- what do you mean that Churchill said it's okay and Ben Gurion said yes it's true Churchill said it's fine a few months earlier they were at 10 Downing Street in London and the leaders of the Zionist movement were meeting with the cabinet of the British government and Winston Churchill was at the head of the table convening the meeting And in the middle of this meeting, it was an unusually warm spring day in London, so Ben-Gurion undid his tie and opened his shirt up a bit and put the jacket on the back of his chair. And Winston Churchill turned to him and he said, I don't give a damn what you do in Palestine, but here you put your jacket and tie on immediately. (laughs) So to me, (laughs) to me, This reminds me of the way the Jewish people used a little bit of chutzpah and creativity to survive. And we've used education and our capacity to think, to survive, and not only to survive, but to do well when societies permitted us to do well. And I would say to you that today, in the words of Elie Wiesel, who's the president of our a small research center. He said that today we're living in a time of a great urgency when he was speaking about anti-semitism and then he went on to correct himself and he said no we're not living in a time of great urgency we're living in a time of a great emergency and this is what Elie Wiesel said in 2003 and he went on to say that he's never been so concerned about the rise of anti-semitism since The end of the Holocaust. And coming from Elie Wiesel, who is a a scholar, and I think he sort of exudes the humility and wisdom in the great rabbinical traditions, I don't think he's an alarmist. He's a serious, rational thinker. And this was in 2003, 11 years ago, when he said this. And I think that the message that we have to speak to as a community, I think this community has to stand up. To the anti-Semitism, not just in the Middle East and not just in Europe, but the anti-Semitism that is here amongst us, in our communities, in our streets, in the finest institutions that this country has created, and I'm thinking in the universities, in the media of record, and yes, even in institutions of power and government. And we have to remember in a very in a way that I don't think we should be ashamed, because we're not just parochial when it comes to anti-semitism. We know in our history, in the history of anti-semitism, that once this disease is unleashed on society, it affects not just the Jews, we may be the first victims or the first intended victims, not always the first victim, but once anti-semitism is permitted to enter into society, into our universities, into our media, into our government, into mainstream popular culture and discourse, that this hatred begins with Jews but it never ever ever ends with Jews ever and this is the lesson that we as a community need to speak about and those who claim to be liberal and those who claim to be concerned about human rights and those who claim to care about democratic principles and notions of citizenship need to take heed that we can't allow anti-semitism to infect our societies because this is a human rights issue. Once this disease is unleashed, women, gay people, religious minorities, moderates become the target of the extremists and the anti-Semites. Today we are witnessing Muslims are becoming the greatest victim of anti-Semitism because we We in the human rights community, and we in the media, and we in the intellectual community have remained silent while this radical reactionary movement is gaining power throughout the Muslim world, but also in the Western world. And we are living in a moment where I think we've lost track of what's good and what's evil. And we need to speak out for the truth. Anti-Semitism, I'm going to be very crude and give you the history of anti-Semitism in about a hundred seconds, so please bear with me. Anti-Semitism, in a sense, has gone through three major phases. There was a religious phase, a racist phase, and now a phase in which the, the notion of Jewish peoplehood is being attacked, i.e. the demonization of the Jewish people's notion of peoplehood and our connection To the land of Israel and to the state of Israel. What is remarkable about anti-Semitism as opposed to other forms of discrimination is its inherent, and I'm choosing my words carefully, its inherent genocidal aspect. And it's genocidal because what the anti-Semites want to do is transform the Jew. And they want to transform the Jew to save the world, in quotations, to save the world. So when religion was the dominant way of perceiving reality, the Jew was the quintessential other. The Jew was the, 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 the group of people that committed diocide that not only would not accept the Christian notion of the Messiah, but they were responsible in the eyes of some at various points for the death of the Messiah. And people believe that if the Jew, that the Jew was basically blinded by evil, that they couldn't see the truth, they couldn't see the light, and that they were blinded by evil, so they were shut off from anything good. But what was remarkable about this anti-Semitism is that people believed that the Jew had to be changed and transformed and accept the Christian notion of the Messiah in order to save themselves, but also in order to save the world. So the salvation of the world was bound up in the fate of the Jew. And we know what the results of this were not just to the Jews, but to European society, to Christian society, that allowed this hatred to go unchecked. When the dominant way of perceiving reality was through the lens of race and ethnicity and of nation, Jews who lived in places and communities for many generations, for many centuries in some cases, suddenly found themselves to be the outsider again, but based on nation and race. So what people perceived the Jew was poisoning the purity of the white Aryan race, and this contaminant had to be removed. So, unlike during the period of Christian domination, there was no way to convert your race because we were born. Uh, socially constructed notions were were bound up in the way we were born and our genetic uh, composition, if you will. So the Jew had to be removed from society to save the white pure race and the purity of the nation. Today, the demonization of Israel has in some circles not only brought upon jihadism, if you remember, I think it's the discourse is beginning to change, but there were people, I was thinking of a McGill University graduate, graduate named Mr. Brzezinski and other advisors to this administration who believed that if only the stubborn Jews would change their policies that this would somehow dissipate radical Islam and somehow dissipate jihadism and bring peace to the Middle East and peace to the world. So again, if only the Jew, the stubborn Jew would change their policy, somehow miraculously world peace would break out in the Middle East and spread throughout the world. And this, in my view, is a form of anti-Semitism, the dehumanization, the demonization of Israel. So on the one hand, we have radical political Islam, and when I speak about radical political Islam it's very important. I am not speaking about Islam, and I am not speaking about Muslims. I am speaking about a reactionary political force that is gaining strength in many Islamic countries but also in Islamic institutions throughout the world. And this reactionary social movement is demonizing the Jew and demonizing the Zionist and demonizing the Israeli and putting focus on the Jew and the Zionist and the Israeli and over here they're taking away the rights of women, the rights of gay people They're taking away the rights of minorities, of Christian minorities, of moderate Muslims who want to live in a democratic uh, space and society. So while they focus on the Jew, they're transforming their society. And this is the danger of anti-Semitism. And in a sense, I would argue that the radical political Islamists are the shock troops, are the shock troops for the anti-Semites in the Western world. They're the shock troops of the anti-Semites in the West world because they're straightforward and honest and they speak the same language in English and French and German and Arabic and Farsi. They say it the way they see it. They're, they're, They're not putting spins on it. It's we in the West who claim to be liberal, who claim to care about notions of democracy, who claim to care about human rights and the dignity of all people to be equal in front of one legal system It's we in the West who have remained silent while this radical reactionary movement is gaining strength, and we, some of us, have put the focus on Israel and blaming Israel for the cause of the problems. Western democratic values, multicultural societies, are inherently based on the recognition of the other. Emmanuel Levinas, the great... Jewish philosopher born in Lithuania, did his PhD in France, he was in France while his family were being liquidated in Lithuania and he survived the war, and in a sense he brought Jewish philosophical ethics to the European University and he paved the way for other thinkers and philosophers, he's a very important thinker, and his work was based on the ethics of seeing and perceiving and treating the other, and that this was the foundation of democratic liberal societies. And Levinas, using Jewish ethics, wrote how the moment we see our face and the face of the other, once there is this recognition, this is the instant we become human. So the recognition of the other is integral to human relations and societal relations in democratic societies. And philosophers, multiculturalism as a policy and as a theory and a philosophy, comes out of Emmanuel Levinas' work and he writes importantly and others have written as well when we see a social movement that is incapable of recognizing the other in this case radical political Islam, the Muslim Brotherhood for example as one offshoot of this uh, social movement they perceive Jews to be emanating from the urine of donkeys that we are the descendants of animals, of apes and of pigs So it's impossible to negotiate. It's impossible to have a democratic society where there is this social movement that perceives the other as non-human. We know from history, from the history of anti-Semitism, from the history of apartheid and slavery, of segregation, that once we don't see the other as human, this can lead to all forms of catastrophes. And I have to say that this reactionary movement The Muslim Brotherhood, if you go, this is where radical political Islam started, even in the Shiite world. And I would urge you, as a community, if we know from our history that knowledge is power, we have to read what these people are thinking and what they are doing. We need to know the language of the Muslim Brotherhood. We need to know that the founders, Banai and Qutub, perceived Jews as animals. They took European, the most pernicious forms of European anti-Semitism, and incorporated it into their notion of religion. They took the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the forged document from Europe, from France, or Russia, depending on, on which history that you, you read of the Protocols. And the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the lies about the Jews, lay the foundation for the Holocaust. And hatred and the Holocaust, Begins with words and it begins with ideas and the this lie about the Jews the protocols of the elders of Zion Which led to the Holocaust as Eli Wiesel and others? Prominently say the Holocaust did not happen when the railroad tracks and the crematoriums were built They started to happen when the words and the lies were accepted as truth today the Muslim Brotherhood is the greatest purveyor of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. They've incorporated the Protocols into their religious doctrine. The Protocols today in Islamic countries where the Muslim Brotherhood is active is today a mainstream ideology, a mainstream view. And we in the West, in in Europe, in the United States, think that we can engage these Islamists because they're more moderate than ISIS or ISIL. They're more moderate than Al-Qaeda because they think through political processes they can come to power. They look down upon the beheading of ISIS and they think they can come to power through other means, through political means. But the goal and the ideology is the same. The root is the same. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is a problem, and we have to. In this postmodern moment, if you look at postmodern thought, one minute, two minutes, one minute. two Okay, in this postmodern moment, when European philosophers wanted to go away from binary notions of we and they, of, of of us and them, and we created this notion of postmodernity after World War II and after colonialism, that people like Edward Said and Michel Foucault championed championed the Iranian Revolution. And these are the main thinkers. These are, this is the canon in today's university are people like Michel Foucault and Edward Said who speak nothing about anti-Semitism and actually praise the Iranian Revolution as something akin to what the French Revolution was to Europe at Enlightenment. This is what we're dealing with. I would just like to finish, and I would like to, to say, and this is the dangers and this is the danger and this is where I think our community needs to stand up and we need to educate our policymakers we need to educate our leaders and the like and I'm thinking there's many examples but the most recent example that I find disturbing is that when when President Obama addressed the General Assembly and he praised the Imam or Sheikh Bin Baya Bin Baya is a close associate of Kawadari they work for the Kawadari Foundation, they're funded by the Kawadari Foundation in Qatar they are the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood Kawadari literally, literally praises Hitler's work and urges Muslims to finish the deeds of Hitler these are direct quotes if you read the Hamas charter they call for the killing of Jews and they've incorporated the protocols of the elders of Zion and yet The American administration and other leaders, other countries uh, in Europe and the like have taken a soft approach to the Muslim Brotherhood and have actually praised them for their condemnation of the the, the war, the the, the horrific war that ISIS is leading. But what's very important that I think that we need to understand is that ideology, ideology is very important and if western governments are praising the Muslim Brotherhood and praising leaders of a a organization or a religious movement that wants to exterminate Jews, kill gay people, kill Christian minorities, kill moderate non-believing Muslims, then we are in trouble because if we praise these people with this ideology, it's giving voice to the people not only in the Middle East, it's giving oxygen, if you will, to what's happening in the streets of Europe. It's giving oxygen to the Islamists in Europe and in North America. And we have to understand that contemporary anti-Semitism began with the Jews, but it doesn't end with the Jews. And I work closely with people like Bassam Tibi, Harris Rafiq, prominent Muslims, practicing Muslims who know that praising these Islamists are are destroying their own societies, they're destroying their mosques, they're destroying their their societies and they're very active in fighting against radical political Islam. So if we are as a community concerned about liberal democracy, about citizenship, that everybody should be equal under one law and there should not be second-class citizens, then we have to in the fight against anti-Semitism, I would argue, speak very loud and very clear against any reactionary force that wants to destroy democracy and harm its citizens. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Small. Thank you. Let me call on Ira Foreman. Uh,
6: I appreciate uh, this event tonight and being on this panel and the opportunity to speak. I want to thank the Federation uh, and Louise Fleischman and JCRC. I also want to thank uh, Lisa uh, Lickstein who um, originally brought up this idea to me. I want to thank her for being here tonight. So I've been asked tonight to speak about what the U.S. government can do to combat anti-Semitism. What my office or our office at the State Department does to combat anti-Semitism. And I'm gonna do that tonight a bit, but I will not confine myself to this because if I do, I'll speak for about two minutes and then walk off. Why do I say that? There are two reasons. First, we don't have the answers. We don't have a grand strategy on how we're going to defeat anti-semitism in the 21st century. We don't have all the answers, and our toolbox is limited. The United States is the superpower in the world, and it alone cannot defeat anti-semitism. There need to be a lot of partners that work with us. And some things we do, frankly, I can't speak about. Uh, I am not a uh, professional or a career diplomat, but I have learned in 17 months that there are things that we do all the time that are private diplomacy and we can't speak about. And I'll try to give you the fullest idea keeping within those bounds. So tonight, I want to give you my perspective uh, after 17 months of doing this job, uh, 17 countries I've been to, a number of countries like France and Belgium and Ukraine, etc. I've been in multiple times. And I don't want to leave you with the impression that I am the expert. I've talked in the 17 months with a lot of people much smarter than I, who've spent much more time. So I'll try to bring in their perspective as well. Uh, and I'm just one voice, but I will try to give you where, how I see things. I want to talk first about how bad is the problem? Is it getting worse? What's at stake with this problem? Two, what does the State Department do, do? What does the special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism do? Three, I want to talk about the complex, complexity and the difficulty. Be very easy to simplify this problem and say that there's one way to attack it. And that would be doing all of us a disservice. And then I want to end with a little bit about a kind of a broad stroke of what we can do, what has to be done, And I want to end also with a related problem, which I will not call anti-Semitism, but I think we should understand it as we think about Jewish communities, particularly in Europe. So how bad is the problem, and what's at stake? So I think it's really, really critical that we get this right. I do a disservice to this issue if I oversell this to an audience like you or, frankly, to the White House if I say the sky is falling. I also do a disservice if I undersell this problem. So I think we have to get it right. So what does that mean? Well, the first thing I think it means is this is not 1939. It is not 1939. Now, history never repeats itself, so that's easy to say. And this is not to say that, in, that, we won't, that Jews do not face violence and even death in certain countries, but we're not, I don't believe, five years from boxcars to Auschwitz. So what is at stake? I think the very viability of a number of Jewish communities around the world, particularly in Europe, is at stake immediately. And not only viability, but the vitality of other communities that are not going to go away right away. Now, it's easy to say, well, we lose a community. Some of these communities are 500 years old. Some are 1,000 years old. Some are 2,300 years old. In the next five years, they could be gone. But it's not only a question of Jewish communities. We're facing the, the crisis, the existential crisis. Can democracies in the 21st centuries, democracies that are our allies often, that we depend on in Europe and other places, depend on in our in in the worldview that we have, can they protect religious and other minorities? And if they can't, that's a very, very bad statement. So, is it getting worse? Well, the first thing I think we have to do again being to be critical, to get it right. We have to look at the data. And unfortunately, the data is not great. I want to thank the ADL for this first set of polls, and I know they're going to do a follow-up, because this is a set of data points that will be helpful to us to track. But there needs to be a lot more. We have hate crime data from many countries in the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe. Some 50 countries from North America all the way to Central Asia are required to keep hate crime data. And fortunately, in most cases, we keep data very poorly. That has to stop. So we have to look at data. We also have to look at what's the anecdotal. If we don't have perfect data, what does our gut say? What do we think we say? Well, the data generally says things, yes, they are getting worse. The Canner Center in Tel Aviv, uh, if you look at their chart lines from 2004, there is a steady uprise, even before this summer and this year. Uh, There are other sets of data on hate crimes, very imperfect data that say some of the same things. But I think it's more anecdotal data that is really compelling. I have not talked to anybody in 17 months who would not say to me that anti-Semitism has gotten dramatically worse in the 21st century, since essentially 2001. And frankly, I've seen few who've even said that it hasn't gotten worse particularly since the economic crisis of 2008. Now again, this doesn't mean it's worse everywhere. I would tell you frankly, I would think in Ukraine, it's probably better today than it was 10 years ago. But Ukraine is the outlier. So that's what we see. That's what we think. What do do we do with the United States government? What is the special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism? This office was created 10 years ago by a bipartisan act of Congress. Uh, Outside of Israel, it's the only special office that deals with anti-Semitism directly. And as the name says, we monitor and combat. How do we monitor? We put out two reports every year that we collect from our some well, nearly 200 posts around the world. The Human Rights Report and the International Religious Freedom Reports, the two reports most read that the United States State Department puts out. And it's available online and it is uh, dense going through, but if you want to get a sense every year of what's happening, it is the best, I think, compendium of data out there. Country by country and in a world where Jews are only 14 million. We report on it in nearly 70 countries. We have the phenomena of reporting on places where we have anti-Semitism where Jews don't exist. We also, also the, our office, myself and others in our office, we travel the world where we think there are problems and uh, try to talk to government officials, to NGOs, and to the Jewish community leadership to see get a sense of what's happening. Now, the combating part is much more difficult. Um, diplomatic tools, I am not the expert on diplomatic tools. In 17 months, I've learned a fair amount. But I can tell you what we do. First off, we convene. And as I said, we're not going to solve this problem in the U.S. government alone. We convene uh, nonprofits, We convene other governments, et cetera. An example, on September 2nd, we brought together the Secretary of State three assistant secretaries and a host of deputy assistant secretaries and office directors to meet with heads of 14 American Jewish community organizations, including the ADL, the American Jewish Congress, B'nai B'rit, the Jewish Federations of North America, Hadassah, Uh, I could go on and on. Uh, We also brought in three representatives of Jewish communities in Europe for a three and a half hour conversation on what's happening and and an exchange of ideas. Another thing we do is bilateral diplomacy. Frankly, we can do most when governments are problematic, when we think that our allies or other governments can do a better job or are doing actually a bad job. That's when we have the most impact. And it's often frustrating where governments are doing the best job, we think. And frankly, we have the least leverage when that happens. Uh, here's an example. We do a thing called a demarche. I can demarch a diplomat, a for example, an ambassador from another country who resides in Washington, bring them in and talk to them. Uh, it may be a, a difficult conversation, it may not be, but it's a, an attempt and a way to get back to their foreign ministries and their governments, our concerns. And I will tell you, I have sat down with ambassadors where government representatives, their leadership, have said some really awful things, and we've made them know know in certain terms that we find this unacceptable. And those cables go back. Um, There are many other uh, examples I fear if I uh, will get fired if I start talking about them. There's also multilateral diplomacy. So for example, the UN General Assembly, uh, there was an effort by a number of diplomats in the United States to talk to other countries leading up to the UN General Assembly this year to talk about the issue, what is happening, and what can be done. I think you'll see initiatives in the UN uh, further on this year with ourselves and other allies talking about anti-Semitism. Within the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, on November 12th, foreign ministers are going to be meeting in Berlin on the 10th anniversary of what was called the Berlin Conference on Anti-Semitism. Again, a chance for Western democracies to confront the problem of anti-Semitism and what needs to be done. There is public diplomacy uh, when, for example, President Obama last spring spoke about the anti-Semitism that was happening in the eastern Ukraine, where there were reports of Jews were being told to report to the city hall to register to see who would be essentially unloyal and have to be ex- may have to be expelled. President Obama spoke out and there are times it's critical our top leaders not just our office speak out publicly but there's also private diplomacy I can tell you when the streets when some European capitals were out of control in July during the Gaza war uh, US embassies in Europe at times called uh, law enforcement local law enforcement national law enforcement to, to ask do you have enough people on the streets for demonstrations coming this week. And I know that gave some comfort to Jewish communities in parts of Europe. Then there, uh, there are conundrums, though. Many a times it would feel good to speak out and blast the country. But I can tell you, with, even within the last month, I had a Jewish community come to us and say, if you publicly take on our leadership, we take it it will come back and rebound to us. Do it privately. Be frank with them privately, push them privately, do not do it publicly, only as a last resort. So we often have to make tough choices. Is it public? Maybe it feels better doing it public. But is it protecting a Jewish community effectively? And finally, we do fund programs. Right now we're funding a program that ADL is doing in Greece and Hungary, two places where we now have anti-Semitic parties openly anti-Semitic, deeply anti-Semitic party, Jobik in Hungary, Golden Dawn in Greece, which have significant parliamentary representation, and they have street militia. I don't think we've seen that in Europe since 1933 before the National Socialists took over in Germany. NADL is doing a project bringing NGOs, Jewish NGOs, as well as um, non-Jewish NGOs together to combat anti-semitism in both countries funded by the state department we do other programs like that around the world some of which i can't mention because we would put our funders the people we fund in in danger so let me just move on to complexity it would be nice to say this problem is simple the first thing we should know i believe personally we don't solve the problem of anti-semitism in my lifetime, your lifetime, our grandchildren's lifetime, anti-Semitism is likely, very likely to be with us. It's been around for 23, perhaps 25, hundred years. And I suspect, at least for the next few centuries, we will live with anti-Semitism. But I like to use um, the metaphor of a faucet. We're not going to turn the faucet off, but maybe we can turn it down. And I also like to look at what is a good example of where we've been successful in a program against anti-Semitism. We only have to look back a couple decades to the Soviet Jewry movement. An amazing uh, story, especially in light of the failures of the Holocaust, where uh, a very difficult problem was largely solved of a huge Jewish community that was deeply uh, threatened and was largely saved. But Soviet Jewelry looks very easy compared to the problem we face today. In the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, we had one address, one address that could solve the problem. Where was that address? It was the Kremlin. Today, to confront anti-Semitism, there is no one address. In fact, in most countries, there is not one address to solve the problem. And in every single country, Charles Small made some reference to it. I, we sometimes categorize these things a little differently. I see different forms of anti-Semitism. We see left-wing, anti-colonial, or anarchist anti-Semitism. We see right-wing, neo-Nazi anti-Semitism. We see anti-Semitism coming out of uh, communities from North Africa, say French citizens of North Africa, or even Turkish. Uh, both Muslim communities. We see populist anti-Semitism, soccer hooliganism, people like Doudonnet in France, the comedian who comes from the right uh, supposedly but has leftist antecedents and really has followers from both sides and is essentially anti-establishment. And the Jews in France, often, uh, are associated with the government, a government that has done a tremendous job in the la- this past summer. In speaking out, trying to protect its Jewish communities, but is also both political, main political parties have serious problems? Sorry, close to the microphone? Okay. So, talking about France, um, we have um, different forms of anti Semitism. France has multiple forms. So, here's an example the Fundamental Rights Agency of Europe, the European Union. Did a poll in the end of 2013. I'm sorry, end of 2012, that was released at the end of 2013. It was a poll of the Jewish community of the European Union. And in that poll, 29% of Jews, again, this is almost two years ago, said that they have thought of leaving their country because of anti Semitism. The number in Hungary was 48%, the number in France was 46% the number in in Belgium was 40 percent. Now if you just looked at that number, Hungary 48, France 46, you would think anti-Semitism in Hungary and France are exactly the same. Nothing could be further from the truth. French Jews are fearful of violence, violence coming out of, as we said, French citizens of North African descent, of Turkish descent, Hungarian Jews are not worried about violence, but they face deep anti-Semitism. Right-wing anti-Semitism of Jobbik and problems sometimes with the government. In Belgium, you have similar problems as in France. You have, again, French, uh, Belgian Jews frightened in places like Brussels because of, again, Belgian citizens of North African or Turkish descent, but the government in Belgium has not spoken out like the government in France. It's a, it makes it a very different situation. So we have tremendous variations of types and how you address anti-Semitism in each of these countries. Moving forward, what must we do? Well, first we must have our allies around the world, particularly in Europe, recognize the problems, recognize the problems within each of their countries. Some of our allies have done a good job. Frankly, and sometimes we don't know what to tell them to do more. But we need to try and work with both them and nonprofits. We need, first, to get security. We need these communities to have some security. I can tell you horror stories of places like Sarcelles, France, of the types of worries of security that French Jews have. We need civil society. Talking to French Jews last month, they were very grateful for what the government has done. I hear some of the things from German Jews as well. But they're deeply concerned that civil society has not risen up. You know, in the United States, we don't believe in, in outlawing hate speech. In Europe, often they do. We believe the way you attack hate speech is you overwhelm it with good speech. So in this country, often when you say something anti-Semitic, racist, etc., you can say it. You're allowed, not against the law. But you will get a raft, an avalanche of criticism. It's one of the most effective tools we have to fight anti-Semitism and other forms of intolerance in this country. We need civil society in these countries to rise up. The church, political leaders, nonprofit leaders, all forms of leadership in a community. That is not happening in none of these countries. And finally, but long term, we need education. And what does that mean? That's a great question because I don't know what the best practices are. I know just teaching about the Holocaust in and of itself does not solve problems of anti-Semitism. Sometimes it does if it's done well. But there are a lot of other things we need to know about what best practices are. Let me end briefly on the question that we don't identify as anti-Semitism although certainly it has forms of anti-Semitism associated with it and forms, frankly, of Islamophobia. But before this summer's violence, one of the things we focused on was the attempts to ban circumcision in parts of Europe, primarily Northern Europe, the Nordic countries, Netherlands, Denmark, Scandinavian countries. If you ban circumcision in these small, with these small Jewish communities, you can, maybe the quickest way to end their viability. There are parts of Europe, sometimes different parts of Europe, that try to ban uh, ritual slaughter, shikita. but you can always then import meat. But with, with circumcision, you have three choices. You can, if it's banned, you can do it illegally. You can take an eight-day-old child across state lines, international borders, or you can leave. With many of these small communities, we think people will leave. So the United States government, on the basis of religious freedom, is going to be very adamant about talking to our allies around the world about the importance of religious freedom and the importance, the devastation that a ban on circumcision would take. Let me close by talking, ending by saying, I realize what we're saying can sound depressing. There's no end to anti-Semitism. Not in my lifetime. I want you to know I'm not depressed personally. Um, I think often, as I said at the beginning, it's important to understand what we're facing. And what the Jewish communities of Europe in 1939 faced was much more dark than what we face today. Let's be honest. That's not to diminish the problem, the serious problem that we have. But also, As difficult as this problem is, and as complex as it is, I think we have to go back to our sages. Rabbi Torfan, many of you have heard the the saying that we're not required to complete the task, but we are required to begin it. But maybe that would say, "Okay, if we start it, that's good enough. Well, I think Rabbi Torfan gave us some other advice, which is more than that. This is a serious problem. We're going to need everybody's help on this. And he said, the day is short, the labor is vast, the workers are lazy, the reward is great, and the master is insistent. He's insistent and to all of us getting involved. Thank you.
3: Wow, this was an incredible uh, uh, set of talks. Very informative, very uh, very interesting, of course, and broad-based. I, before uh, we move on, I want to remind everyone to fill out the cards that you have if you have questions. And be sure to pass them to the aisle. And I think Mary is picking them up.
7: Yes. Mary okay. and Amy okay. are picking them up. OK, OK.
3: You
2: give them to Patrick Murphy
8: and to Yeah, sure.
3: I, I think uh, Brooke made mention that Congressman Murphy is in attendance. And I'd like to invite Congressman Murphy to say a few words on perhaps the new initiative in Congress on anti-Semitism. So Congressman Murphy.
8: Everybody's leaving. I haven't even started talking yet. Jeez, (laughs) Man. Uh, Well, I I know it's uh, getting late in the evening, so I'll try to be brief, but uh, thank you uh, for having me briefly. Uh, Sorry I missed some of the presentations. I was up in uh, St. Lucie County, a busy day running around, but uh, this is a very, very important event. And I want to thank the JCC, first of all, for hosting us. Uh, Great facility. It's great to have this in our backyard. I uh, also want to thank the JCRC. I uh, want to thank Hava, uh, my friend, for your leadership, uh, the Honorable Ira Foreman, and, of course, Professor, Professor Charles Small uh, for, for being here, uh, for joining us. Uh, you all know are real leaders on this matter. I also want to thank uh, Dr. Louis Fleischman. And uh, you don't know I'm going to tell this story, but I'll be uh, brief in telling it because I had an opportunity to speak at the Federation four to six weeks ago and uh, had a nice conversation about a a lot of issues going on in the world. And uh, we got to talking and a young lady came up and was talking with us and three of us were talking after the event and started sharing our concerns about the rise of anti-semitism in the country. Well I went back to DC that following Monday and I sat down with Steve Israel started talking to him about exactly what was going on in the event that I'd been to. Um, We put together a letter and I uh, led a group of 75 members of Congress with Congresswoman, uh, Mario, Dia- Congressman Mario, Il- Mario Diaz Ballard, Ileana Ross Layton, Ted Deutsch, and Jack Kingston, and got 75 folks together on a letter to uh, the Honorable <laughs> Ira Foreman, and uh, had a chance uh, to uh, send that over. And uh, this is an issue that I think everybody here knows is a nonpartisan issue. Uh, and it's a human rights issue. It's an issue that uh, goes to the core of our nation and affects our values of freedom, liberty, and justice. And we need to not only uh, condemn, but lead the world in this troubling surge. And it's not just violence against the Jewish community. If we allow this to continue, other minority groups will be affected around the world. I'm sure that's been addressed tonight, but as America, we need to be leading the charge here. I had a meeting about two weeks ago uh, with Professor Deborah Lipstate, Professor DeRote, and David Harris, the ED of the AGC. And we had a meeting right before I left for the latest recess that we're on in Congress. and got a chance to talk about the letter that I wrote, and they gave me that opportunity and that uh, forum to to discuss it. And I committed that I would lead the charge, not only in the Congress, but uh, in the United Nations, because this is a fight that must be global. It can't just be in America. This is of real concern and something that must be addressed with other parliaments, other equivalents of our Congress, with all countries, to make sure that we do not allow the spread of this hatred, of these riots, of these attacks, of these protests, and these boycotts to continue. So uh, I applaud the JCRC for uh, your continued support, and applaud everybody in this room for being here, for staying so late and your commitment to combating this because this is what it's going to take it's going to take a united front a united community to combat this and when i go back to washington dc in a few weeks i'm going to talk about tonight's event you know you give me the strength to go back and talk about how much support there is to combat this you know it's, my title is representative Right? It's my job to bring your voice, your concerns, to Washington, D.C., every day. And this is an issue that is right at the top of my list to fight against. So, uh, again, thank you all for having me very much. I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you,
3: thank you. Thank you Congressman Before we get to the questions that you uh, passed forward, I'd like to ask... The uh, consul general of France and the consul general of Germany. If either one would like to say anything.
9: Okay. Well, good evening, good evening to you all. I hope you can hear me. My name is Philippe Letria. I'm the French consul general. Yeah. yeah, maybe, I, maybe i just, just take it. Okay, that's
2: a better. I'm, I'm, I'm here with, with
9: my good friend Jürgen Bosch, consul the General, General of, of, Germany, of Germany, and we are very happy to be with you, with you, tonight. To be with you tonight. So I'll give the floor to Jürgen in a minute, but I would like to say a few words. Is it is it better like this? Okay. Uh, I was very interested and thank you for what you, what you have said, which was very important. And I really share most of what you, you have said. The poll was useful and interesting. And thank you for all your, your words. You mentioned uh, a number of times the situation in France. And I want to tell you that we are all concerned in France with the present situation with the Jewish community. We were quite, uh, let me say, quite happy at the beginning of the year because we had seen ten years of decreasing uh, anti-Semitic acts in France. And all of a sudden we have an increase, a terrible increase, with uh, attacks against uh, synagogues, with uh, some uh, killings in Belgium, And that was absolutely terrible. So we are facing a very hard situation. And the public authorities know about it. And they act against it. And you you have to know that in France, we have very hard laws and and enforcement against anti-Semitism, discrimination, or Holocaust denial. This is something we are doing with the present government and with the President One. We are also working a lot on the web, because on the website you have to be there and you have to combat anti-semitism on the website also. So we are also doing this. But we also have an important action, and you you mentioned it, uh, I guess Ira at the end, on education. And there I want to let you know that I have the feeling, and it was also said, that after all, nowadays, we are in very different situation than the situation we had just before World War II or at the end of 19th century in France, where we had an awful and terrible anti-Semitism everywhere, all, all over the society. This is very different today. Our people is educated. They all know about the Shoah, the Holocaust. We all learn in school, our children, they all learn about it and they are very sensitive to it. But in France we have, as you know, a very diverse community and we have to live all together. And that, that was also pointed out by um, I guess Charles and Ira. So we have to live all together. And we are facing a situation in, in, um, in the Middle East and we have consequences inside, inside the country. But you also have to know that, I don't have the exact figure, but more than 70% of our Muslim community have a very positive opinion on, Jew commun- on the Jewish community in France. So this is also something we have to work on. If I may, if I may finish, conclude with something maybe not too, too serious, serious. I must let you know that we have a new movie in France, and we had it last year, and it was very successful. And the title of the movie was Qu'est-ce qu'on a fait au bon Dieu What did we do to God And this is a French family, a very classic uh, Catholic family, uh, with uh, the father and the mother, and they have four daughters. And the first daughter will marry a Muslim, the second daughter will marry a Jew. The third daughter will, will, will marry an Asian. Right? And so they have our, our, they, they have the fourth daughter. And they pray to have a Catholic for a son who knows that time. And so there is a huge pressure on the fourth daughter. And she falls in love with a young guy, bright guy, great guy. And guess what? He is a Catholic. So she tells this to, to her sisters and they tell, just tell the parents, they will be very happy. And uh, she says, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. And she doesn't want to do it. And after a long time, she, 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 there is a presentation. And he's he a Catholic, he's a bright guy. The only point is he's a black guy. <laughs> so you see, there we are a multicultural society and at the end they learn about each other and, and all the, all the um, son-in-law they go to a catholic mass and the parents they go to a Jewish service so this is at the end what I, I, the message I am sure we should convey and we try to convey in France. Let's know better about each other.
7: My name is Jurgen Borst and I can only endorse what my friend uh, Philippe just said. Um, I think what is uh, again worth mentioning is uh, that education is paramount. Um, As you mentioned Philippe, um, uh, in our school systems um, Holocaust education is an integral part of our curriculum at school. I have two grown kids, they study in Berlin and they have been to synagogues in Berlin Berlin is today um, the fastest growing Jewish society uh, in in Europe and we are proud of this. And we don't want to get this destroyed by the latest developments. And this is the point where we really have to speak out. I know the bad side of the story is that we will never extinguish hatred or anti-Semitism in the world but I'm pretty convinced that we will be able to get the numbers higher and higher of those who speak out and stand up for mutual respect, for um, uh, understanding, international understanding, respect to one another and speaking out against hatred, anti-Semitism and every form of discrimination. I think this is what we have to invest into the future. It started already, our kids have grown up in a free and open society and I think this is something that we should, should um, uh, continue to, to, to work on uh, in, a, in, a, in a global uh, effort. Um, what came to my mind is uh, a, a word of, um, and I, I, I believe you, most of you will, will, will have heard it, of Martin Niemöller, who uh, was, when he was young, um, fascinated about the idea of uh, the Nazis, and he applauded uh, the uh, coming into power of, uh, of Adolf Hitler. But then he realized that he was terribly wrong. And he was later one of the most proponent enemies of this regime and he was imprisoned. And Martin Niemöller um, survived uh, these years and his famous quote is, they came out for the communists and I didn't speak out because I was not a communist. And then they came out for the social democrats and I didn't speak out because I was not a social democrat. And then they came out for the trade unionists. And I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came out for me. And there was no one left to speak for me. And I think this is the message that we have to teach to our children and to teach their children that this is most important, speak out, do something, And it is not only the politicians, it is the whole society that has to speak out. In Berlin, we are going to found a place where we will have an opportunity under one roof, in the House of One, that's the the name of this project, to have a house for prayers and other events of Muslims, Jews, and Christians. The place is already designed in the center of Berlin And I think it's important to have signals like this to make very clear anti-Semitism and hatred and disrespect to others does not have a place in this world. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. incredible words and uh, we appreciate it now the fun part questions and answers uh, as moderator uh, i will i want to ask the first question as louise says it's my privilege so i have a general question a very basic question for Hava uh, regarding uh, anti-semitism on college campuses it really hasn't been addressed here so if you can speak about that for a moment. And you, you, can, you want to do it from you your seat? You whatever you want. You can stand up from where you, know, where you
2: are. This is,
4: this is a half-day seminar at a minimum. It's yes. a very big question, but I'm going to try to answer it very quickly. It does a lot of work with the BDS movement on college campuses, boycotts, assessments, and sanctions. Florida uh, has a lot of activities as far as the BDS Movement, there's a very large chapter, chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine and here in Florida. Florida. So we really go, go at it from three streams because there's three different type of, types of help that's needed. The administrators, we work with the administrators, we work with the students, students themselves, themselves, the people on, on, the, on the campus, campus and, then, and then, then the needs of the surrounding communities that they care, either the alumni or the people who live in the backyard of the university. Okay, I'll the give you one I'm example, this summer, this summer, summer at FAU, there, there was a BDS resolution raised the day before summer, summer session was about to end. end. So, so it kind of snuck up on people, it snuck up, on, it up on, it on, on administrators, the, the students who were on campus, nobody knew it was coming. coming. So, so one angle that we pursued which worked, we received a call from someone so at the university who works there and we, talk through the, the process, process, what, what we're going to do, what happens, how many votes, votes does it take, is, is there a formal is, is there a majority, majority we, where you you know, can this animal be stopped? Uh, and, and this story, it, it went, went nowhere. nowhere. It wasn't even voted on by the student body. So, so number, number one, being involved with the administration, administration helping, helping them, guiding them, them, guiding them online between what's, what's legal, legal, balancing what they need, what they need to, to do, what's legal in their universities, have having open marketplace of ideas, ideas and free speech, and then, and then telling them, you know, though, how, how to also to make sure that the time, place, and manner restrictions are in place so, place so are in place so that students who are on campus, campus don't feel threatened by any activities going, going on, when these demonstrations are going on, that they, they take place in a certain area, that they're and small, they and that they, they don't block your way to class, and they, they don't block your way. I go on for the students themselves. We offer resources, materials how, how to, to respond to what's going on on, on campus. We campus. We recommend that they, they don't count protests at the same time, time as a protest going on, for example, because all that does is draw greater media attention, greater attention. Um, when, when in reality, reality very, few very few students actually attend, actually attend the anti israel media demonstrations occurring on campus. And, and we also educate, we have uh, a new program called Words Word to Action, took three years, three years of focus groups, groups in the making, but it teaches seniors in high school and the students who are on college campuses how to stand, stand up, how to counter bias in the classroom. And those goes two scenarios, scenarios, scenarios very specifically. specifically. So for example, if you look at a professor, gives you, you, get get you get an assignment, assignment, and he says, all right, I need a three-page essay on how, how you compare apartheid in South Africa to apartheid in Israel. What do you do? If you're a student, student in that situation, very, very different from, from us grown-ups outside, outside of school, you know, you know might say they're, they're really there. there. This is their professor. They, they have to live with the professor all year. They <coughs> want a good grade in the class. What, what do you do? do you How do you respond to that? To, that? to, to, to a different you're type of scenario, you're in the library, your library, library with your library, study group of friends, and somebody, you know, makes some. antithesis of that at so that program was launched in Florida last year. Incredible feedback. Very successful at our students. And that's yes. the de- yes. de- yes. de- yes. de-
3: Thank you very much. Now the, uh, the questions. Uh, my uh, question better is uh, okay. This is open to uh, any of the panelists. What role do the media play in promoting anti-Semitism? What can we do about biased media coverage?
5: That's an important question. Um, I think it's part of the problem. And I think the media has shifted in the last several decades. I remember when I was a student in London, at 9 o'clock we to go down to the TV room and watched the BBC news. Uh, it was a 30 minute broadcast, and there were three or four documentaries in which a seasoned educated reporter would go to the situation and come to the story, and then they, would they would take, I think, three or four days to do a news story, yeah. and then like, there was a program called Panorama, and every country had these sort of special events once uh, uh, we 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 so we a week or special program once we so we a program week, week, where they would do, do a documentary, documentary on a current issue, issue putting into context <coughs> situations and analyzing situations and, situation and, and inviting experts and policy makers to discuss it. Today,
2: is, we're so living in information
5: uh, global network the internet. The media has become a business, and the 24 hour news cycle is making networks, uh, it's incumbent upon them to put a model of the building person in a situation with a very dramatic backdrops, and it's very, it costs very little to uh, to produce these shows. And this is the news cycle that's going on and on, and I have to compete with the internet. So I'm reminded. I remember I was at Yale University during the Arab Spring. Remember the Arab Spring which was becoming the Islamic Winter. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember CNN and Fox News and BBC and the uh, TV5 and, and all the international media. They had all these good-looking, people running through the square in Cairo, where masses of people were demonstrating, chanting, and there were fireworks, and there was violence, and threats of violence. And the was going to be toppled, it wasn't going to be toppled, and, and this was a democratic, democratic moment. moment. Mm-hmm. Was, I remember going mm-hmm. to school, I had to on the news right away to mm-hmm. see what happened and what's mm-hmm. happening, it was great. And this and was the Arab Spring. spring. Mm-hmm. But well, I remember they, they were chanting in, in the streets of Libya, Cairo, and other parts of the Middle East, there was a screaming, Allah Akbar. Now, and I read many of Karl Marx and so so Rousseau and all the founders of liberal philosophy, and I didn't hear any of them referring to Allah Akbar. And in <coughs> a, a situation like Egypt, where the vast majority of the population are illiterates, a tragic situation in terms of the poverty, the education, lack of education, of education. where were the scholars, scholars where were scholars, where the serious journalists? Analyzing the situation, trying to understand what the people were reacting to,
2: which was the inflation, the cost of food, and, and the basic necessities skyrocketed because of the, the
5: subprime mortgage catastrophe that economic downturn. and It pushed prices up, up the flour and sugar in the, and the Middle system. Places where people had enough, know, and they, and and they couldn't afford and to live, live and, and they, they revolted. It. But, but it, this is where the Muslim brotherhood, Was invited by by the United States States and by European countries to to help usher in this sort of Arab Spring. And and now we see tonight there's a city on the border of Syria and Turkey, which ISIS is in the process of occupying. This may not be 1939, but the anti Semites are swallowing people and forgetting people as we speak. And these situations (laughs) need to be analyzed by experts by scholars, by informed by media people. We, we have to give space, space to the media that informs people, not, not just with information, information and sexy images, but with knowledge. And we have to make, enforce uh, uh, <coughs> observations and analysis that they, and,
2: and this, this is lacking tremendously in, in the United States,
5: States and in many other countries recently, and I think this, this is creating, creating a, a vacuum, vacuum in which the uninformed are allowing these reactionary forces to influence government policy and, and, and to promote their anti-semitism, which is having a profound effect. And of course, there's also the funding of the media. The Qatar Foundation, for example, funds CNN as an example. The Qatar Foundation is funding the top universities in Europe and the United States. What are the implications of we need to have serious analysis and then we have to fight the BDS on campuses, the ADL, and other groups are doing fantastic and very important work, but they're fighting in the corridors. Why aren't courses being taught on anti-Semitism at American English versus contemporary anti-Semitism in the United States and in Europe? Schools are not dealing with the contemporary problem and this is a, a, a crisis in education.
2: Thank you, Thank Dr. You, Small. For the you know. uh,
3: Mr. Foreman is not uh, getting off the hook here. There's a question specifically for him. Uh, Charles, you mentioned the protocols as a tool of the radicals, but yet you fail to blame the Saudis who gave the protocols as gifts all their guests starting from the 1960s. Why?
5: The Saudis funded uh, the distribution of the protocols of the elders of Zion. The Qataris are at the forefront of doing it now. Uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Regime, uh, also their embassies and consulates are spreading the protocols around the world. So whoever asked the question about the Saudis yesterday played an important role in distributing this hatred throughout the Middle East throughout the mosques um, in the Middle East and throughout the world. So, So this this is is, uh, a serious issue, and and it points to the illegitimization and the humanization of Jews and of Israel. Israel. And And I would say that the the protocols and and its incorporation into radical political Islam needs to be confronted. This ideology needs to be confronted wherever it exists. And And it is time, I I would argue, that the, the the monuments to the Holocaust in Europe and North America and the, 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 the monuments, monuments and the forces of programs to the Holocaust in the history of anti-Semitism is of profound importance which should never be underestimated and it's described in Europe, Germany, France, and other countries on these issues. But I think that a real monument to the Holocaust will be when governments stand up to the contemporary forms of anti-Semitism which is dehumanizing is Israel, and it is not a problem, problem for, for the Israelis in the Middle East or the neighboring countries in the Middle East.
2: You were talking about universities. universities.
5: This, this hatred is on the campuses of, campuses of universities. universities. This, this hatred is, is in a the curriculum, curriculum of the finest universities, universities in the Western world. And, and it's, it's being true. treated and, and taught as truth. So we, have, we have to fight, fought, unfortunately, in the corridors. But we also have a fight in the classroom, and this, this is how anti-Semitism is even entering the United States of America through the
2: campuses. A Gener- generation or two
5: of students are learning to perceive Israel, and therefore the Jews, in a certain way. And if Israel is the apartheid state, the Nazi state, the racist, colonial state, then from a liberal human rights perspective we're morally obligated to dismantle it. And then, then, then the if Jewish, Jewish students affiliate with, with Hillel and Havadahs and other, other Jewish organizations, organizations on campuses, these, these institutions, institutions, which have a strong powerful connection to the Jewish the homeland, then become the, the target time. of these so- so-called human rights people who are fighting um, the Zionists and anti-Semitism so is, is the, coming in through our
2: universities. Yes, yeah, uh, thank, thank you, Small, for
3: in Greece,
6: in uh walked into a bookstore. Now, Greece now, which is not a country with uh, a Muslim most minority, the in Walked into a very modern, kind uh, of Noble type bookstore downtown Athens, and asked for the protocols. There were two volumes there. in Greece today, there are 29 volumes circulating, different, different volumes. Different volumes the protocols of the This is not just uh, in the Arab and Muslim world, it is throughout Europe as well. Uh, particularly countries like Greece that are uh, playing in the service uh and in countries often there's not a direct correlation, but often countries that have been facing dramatic
10: economic interests.
3: Real serious. Problems. Thank you, Mr. Foreman.
4: I just so wanted to add one more thing to that, that uh, ADL books on, on the, the ground, ground, practical implications. So, so about a year ago, uh, it was, it was brought, brought to our attention, attention to We discovered, discovered that Mindcom was one of the top
0: downloaded books, downloaded online. books. online. Amazon, Amazon Barnes & Noble. Noble. So, so what are do do you doing, is do not business business a business abandoning
4: book, book okay. and these companies aren't going to take the book off their book list. We got them to let us force a, a forward, a piece of information, information giving context to this book. Because if, if you can imagine, when I grew up, up and most of us grew up, we went to the library for books, books and, and material, books and there was, was a human being that you would talk to, to that might, might tell you about the book, give you a little bit of context. When a book, when a book is, is downloaded down online, there's no, no context. context. There's, there's nobody no that you're talking to. You're just reading whatever it is out there about no the piece of literature. So no now, if you went to either of sites, and you wanted to purchase my comp. you would first uh, have this forward uh, imparted to you that you could read, which would give a little bit of context about
3: the download. Thank you, Hava. Here's an open question. When does criticism of Israeli politicians or Israeli policies become anti-Semitism? Mr. Foreman. There's
2: actually That's right. there's, there's actually
6: uh, U.S. policy on this. We say that criticism of Israel. Uh, basically U.S. policy is that Israel should be treated like any other an country. That means criticism of Israel is appropriate. Sometimes criticism you don't even agree with it is appropriate. But we cross crossing the line when Israel is illegitimate. When Israel, when when we we say, for example, example, that Israel does not have a right to exist, where Zionism is the only form of nationalism that is illegitimate, illegitimate. that that crosses the the line. When When Israel Israel is is defamed, so so something like what the Israelis Israelis are doing to the Palestinians is what the Nazis did to the Jews, that's defamation. When Israel is treated with double standards, that's a crossing the line as well. So we do have direct policy where we talk about where criticism of Israel, uh, sometimes legitimate criticism, then it crosses the over a line to illegitimate criticism in any
3: of Thank you, Mr. Foreman. I have uh, time for one more question. Again, open to uh, any of the panelists. What can local Jewish communities do? to be supportive of the embattled Jewish communities in Europe. Anyone want to take that one?
6: Well, we do not, um, in my position, I'm not in the position of telling Jewish communities or any other group what to do. Uh, Nonetheless, Uh, what I would say to you, we have tools of democracy. We have the the ability to petition petition our members of Congress. We have have the ability to bring up issues issues to Congress, to to the executive branch, and and frankly, we have the ability to to talk talk to people people who represent foreign governments. Um, So So using those tools of democracy, letting people know uh, that we are concerned concerned with what's happening in other countries countries. Uh, is very very important. important. Also, I think as we look at a lot of NGOs around the world, Uh, again, I think the resources that we put into combating anti Semitism probably need to be reassessed. So, some of our Jewish organizations who have many, many important missions, perhaps some of them should also say, Are we doing enough on anti Semitism? Uh, And that's something we're actually doing at a local level in that type of assessment. So, again, without specific instructions, I
1: guess. Be able
3: to Great answer. Hava, you're
4: one, one more point. Um, I mentioned earlier, private diplomacy. We've become a community of and We like to hear, hear everything shouted from the rooftops. And we basically as Jewish organizations, and that's what the question was what do Jewish organizations, what can we do? We have a toolbox. We have a lot of things we can do. And sometimes there's Sometimes it's, Sometimes it's the, the important time to, to be public, public, to shout out in, in the media, to put an, an advertisement in, in the New York, York times, times, to, to say it out but other times, there's, there's important, important time for, time for private, behind the scenes diplomacy. diplomacy. So, so we, we have, have to remember when we do do something, as an organization, the most important community first is the victimized community, or the individuals who are actually being infected in their community and their country. So make sure that whatever it is you do, you've spoken to people who are around the ground and that that conversation is part of the solution.
5: I'll just say very, very quickly. Uh, we're not a traditional organization, I'm the director of DISCAP, which is the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy. And we run programming at top tier universities in the United States and in Canada. Uh, we're at McGill University, Harvard, we work at Stanford, Columbia University. Uh, we were doing work at the University of Miami last year. We opened in uh, Sapienza University in Rome, which is the largest university in Europe. And in December, we're opening in Karas and the their and the CNRS, we're opening a program there. So we're
2: developing
5: a very strong network of scholars and educators. We're trying to educate scholars and students on the interdisciplinary study of ant-Semitism. So perhaps uh, the University of Department and our friends in Europe would be interested in funding the highest caliber of scholars doing very, cutting edge research uh, in these areas
3: thank you okay we have one more speaker but at one shameless moment I'd like to thank my wife for being here James Sussman.
10: very very briefly I want to thank our scene panel and our moderator for the sobering program that we all heard this evening I'd also like to extend my thanks to congressman patrick murphy for his continued efforts to combat (laughs) anti-semitism and the remarks from our consul general. Before we close the program this evening, I want to bring everyone's attention to the fact that November is celebrating Human Rights and Diversity Month. We have some fabulous programs and I urge all of you to pick up a flyer on your way out. I'd like to bring everyone's attention to a program that's being sponsored with the JCRC along with the Davis Foundation and the Palm Beach County um, State College. They are sponsoring a photo exhibit of the Soviet Jew movement. It's going to be
0: on exhibit from November 3rd
10: through the 26th and it's really going to be a fabulous um, showcase of the Soviet, movement, Soviet Jewry movement. I also have two other programs I'd like to bring everyone's attention to. The Jewish Community Relations Council will be hosting Carl Domino, Republican candidate for the District 18, and that's going to be held at the Federation offices on Community Drive in West Palm Beach. And likewise, the JCRC will be hosting Congresswoman Lois Frankel on Tuesday, October 21st at 4 o'clock. And that is also to occur at the Jewish Federation Office of Sun Community. Thank you very much for your attention this evening and for attending our
2: program.